I had a jazz group of my own called Fresh Air, and I went to a beer bar on Vallejo Street, and I said, I want to really get my band in here. I can do fantastic promotion. I'll print up my own posters. I said, I'll have this place packed. Just give me a Monday or two, whatever you can do, and, and I'll... He says, man, I hate jazz, the owner. Freddie says, I hate jazz. It doesn't sell. It sucks. He said, but I'm opening up a big rock club in Berkeley. Why don't you just buy this hole in a wall and, and you can present yourself? It's a good place. You can make some money here, Todd. The rent's low. And uh, I said, yeah, sounds interesting to me. I said, I only got about $8,000. He says, we can make that work. We can make that work. There's a Metro-North train that runs by Todd Barkin's Bronx living room. Talking with him is a bit like riding the express. Barkin is the erudite, exuberant producer and musician who gave San Francisco its bountiful jazz club called Keystone Corner, nourishing the careers of Betty Carter, Freddie Hubbard, Bobby Hutcherson, and his own mentor, Rasan Roland Kirk. The Keystone Corner is the subject of a new book, Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, where Todd Barkin now directs the programming, made headlines in 2011 with the announcement of partnerships with St. Regis Hotels to create five more jazz clubs, beginning in Doha, Qatar. So how does a nice Jewish boy from the Midwest wind up at the center of San Francisco jazz, producer for Kenny Burrell, Grover Washington, and Chico O'Farrell, and now part of what may be the most adventurous investment in jazz since the invention of the festival? Climb aboard for the first leg of this ride. I'm Steve Rath. Todd Barkin talks. We listen on Jazz Stories. Let's go back to the beginning and, uh, and talk about, uh, about your roots and where you came from. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, which was a tremendous jazz town at that time. There was a lot of music and a lot of clubs, jazz on the radio, there were, it was jazz around the clock, actually, in Columbus, Ohio, when I was growing up. And my parents had a tremendous amount of Frank Sinatra and Count Basie and Duke Ellington and all kinds of great jazz in the house. So I was exposed to it very early. And I met a guy on the way to a baseball game by the name of Rasan Roland Kirk. And he had all this stuff around his neck and a stick with a horn on the end, beep, beep. He actually lived very close to where I lived. So I got a lot of early mentoring from Rasan and from just being around, you know, listening to the music nonstop. It became a real uh, passion for me very early in my life, in my early teens. I became a fanatic about jazz and just just naturally gravitated to it. You talked a little bit about meeting Rasan Roland Kirk on the way to... He was just Roland Kirk, right, when you met him? Well, actually, he was being called Ronnie and Roland at that period. When he was a little kid, he was Ronnie, and then he was Roland. Uh, and, and Rasan came much later. Rasan came into the late 60s. I spent a lot of time with him going to record stores and reading the backs of album covers. I spent hundreds of hours doing that with him. And it was as we should We should explain that Rasan was blind almost from birth, right? He was about 80, 90% blind from birth and then became totally blind. But he would prefer to say sightless uh, early in his life. And and then we would go to record stores together and I would read the backs of the, the liner notes uh, to Rasan. And, and it was a learning experience for me. I mean, to spend three hours reading uh, Ira Gitler liner notes and, and uh, 
all the, Joe Goldberg and other Nat Hentoff liner notes to Rasan, we might research two or three hundred records in one visit to a store. So that was also very helpful to me. That was the beginning of a real, you know, involvement in my life with with a full discography of recorded jazz, and it's that's held me in good stead for the next forty years. You know. So who did you read about that you remember aside from those writers that you cited? What musicians did you discover when you were reading liner notes with Roland Kirk? Rasan and I discovered a lot of great players like Buster Smith, the wonderful alto player. I discovered uh, Clifford Jordan that way. Um, I learned a lot more about Baby Dodds, the great uh, New Orleans drummer. I learned a tremendous amount about Max Roach uh, and his different incarnations as a creative jazz master. We learned about a guy named Snookum Russell and the whole tradition of territorial bands in our country, a hothouse for great players like Ray Brown and, and other giants of American music. So when you were reading these liner notes to Ronnie or Roland Kirk, were you listening to the records at the same time? I listened with Rasan, you know, for I would say a good 15 years of, you know, listening to music and going to stores and many, many, a lot of listening was done in his living room. A lot of listening was done on the road when he was in uh, hotel rooms. One of the things that I did for Rasan whenever I was around him, out at Keystone Corner or in Cleveland, I used to bring him a record player and some records. And he would listen to the record player, you know, he'd be like two weeks at the Keystone Corner. I'd bring him 40 or 50 jazz records and a record player. And he would have that going the whole time that he was there. He didn't have an iPod, you know. He had a little cassette player that he put around his neck. And he used that for musical reasons and just to capture things in the environment and capture his own voice. Rasan was the first person that I really shared music with on that primal and constant level. Did you ever get to present him in performance when you were producing concerts at Overland? No, no. I did not present Rasan in concert, in performance at all until I bought Keystone Corner in San Francisco. It was a little corner bar that I bought by accident almost in 1972. The second time... Uh, I presented him. We made the album Bright Moments. Only the second time I ever presented him. And Joel Dorn, the brilliant, uh, late, great producer, uh, wanted to record Rasan live. And Keystone Corner was much beloved to Rasan, so we decided to record there. And I actually played on that record. I played keyboards and percussion, recorded in my own club in San Francisco and North Beach. When you finished Oberlin, did you jump in a car and go to San Francisco? I moved there in 1967. It was like, uh, you know, the summer of love. At that point, Berkeley and San Francisco were a major kind of a cultural uh, lodestone to a lot of wild-eyed young people like myself, especially liberal. And I wound up getting all the way to Sunnyvale, California in this 1941 Cadillac, and it promptly died at a filling station in Sunnyvale car just went over and i didn't have any place to stay i just went out there cold turkey man i went out there cold turkey and uh we still had some cash thank god we had a little bit of cash so and it was a, a lot easier world at that point and i mean in terms of just surviving on the street uh, it was 1967 and we found rooms you could stay on on eddie street 
which is the kind of the red light district in that time. And I found work very fortunately, very quickly at a customs brokerage house. And while I was there, I was playing gigs at night with a group called Kwani and the Quanditos, which was a kind of like Mongo Santa Maria, San Francisco edition. He was a dear friend of Mongo, so he patterned the group totally after Mongo and, and uh, Watermelon Man and all those great hits. So we became very busy, that band. And in that band were people like Tom Harrell on the trumpet, John Handy on alto saxophone. A lot of jazz guys played in that band from time to time. So I played Fender Rhodes and traveled around with that band for, for years. I mean, we did gigs, army bases, bars, all kinds of places, and occasionally a jazz gig. You would get a real jazz gig, which was the best thing of all to me, was the biggest opportunity of all. I had a jazz group of my own called Fresh Air, and I went to a beer bar on Vallejo Street, and I said, I want to really get my band in here. I can do fantastic promotion. I'll print up my own posters. I said, I'll have this place packed. Just give me a Monday or two, whatever you can do. And, and I'll. He says, man, I hate jazz, the owner. Freddie says, I hate jazz. It doesn't sell. It sucks. He said, but I'm opening up a big rock club in Berkeley. Why don't you just buy this hole in a wall and, and you can present yourself? It's a good place. You can make some money here, Todd. The rent's low. And uh, I said, yeah, sounds interesting to me. I said, I only got about $8,000. Huh? He says, we can make that work. We can make that work. So I said, okay. And I came back on Thursday. And all of a sudden, within two hours after I got there, I was the owner of a new jazz club at the age of 20. I wasn't even 26. I was 25. It was July of 1972. And he said, by the way, I'll, you know, you're going to be very tight here, but by the time you open the door, you're going to be flat broke. He said, so I'm giving you two free nights with Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders, and it'll be packed. And I've already paid them. There's makeup dates that they've already gotten paid for. You got it. That'll help you kind of, and I won't have to come back and take this joint over again. So uh, all of a sudden, without any experience in having owning any kind of business, no business experience, no business classes in my whole life, except having presented a few jazz concerts and trying to organize a, few, a couple bands and keep a band working, uh, all of a sudden I'm the owner of a jazz club with 145 seats and a beer license in San Francisco and no idea what I'm doing whatsoever, except that I got two nights with Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders. First night, Jerry Garcia comes in. We were still painting and putting things up, and the, the office was half done. He comes in. He had a full-time guy that did nothing but roll joints for him and dip him in hash oil. That's all he did from morning till night. And he was there, and he was dipping his joints, and he was smoking two or three of them at a time, and he was playing his guitar and loud with a pig-nosed PV amplifier. He was practicing. And, uh, you know, Merle Saunders came in and, and uh, Tom Fogarty, and they came in and, you know, they played this music, and, and it was loud, and there was a, it was packed, and half the audience was, like, psychedelic out. And, uh, it was just, you know, it was what, what, what it was, you know. It was loud, but, you know, it was good music. Producer, musician, and jazz presenter Todd Barkin with the first of our two jazz stories. 
In the next one, we'll hear lots more about his adventures, making the Keystone Corner San Francisco's world-renowned jazz club. You'll find photos from Keystone Corner, Kathy Sloan's new book, Keystone Corner Portrait of a Jazz Club, along with more jazz stories at jalc.org slash jazzcast. More from Todd Barkin there, too, making the world safe for bebop. And more on Miles and Blakey, Rasan Kirk, Bobby Hutcherson, and Betty Bebop on an upcoming jazz stories. I'm Steve Rath. These programs are produced at Murray Street with loving care by Alexa Lim and David Gorin and funds from Jazz at Lincoln Center. Come visit our House of Swing, overlooking Columbus Circle in the heart of Manhattan, and subscribe to our Jazz Stories podcast at iTunes. Find these programs and lots of music at jalc.org slash jazzcast. <laughs>